A Long Way Back to Zion Book 3, The Light and the Book Chapter 3 Give me just one generation of youth, and I'll transform the whole world. Vladimir Lenin San Francisco, California Cat had never been inside her local policy enforcement center. The building was built with the purpose of being intimidating. It was only three stories tall, but it took up most of the city block. It had no windows on the first and second floors, and it stood like a dark stone wall stretching all the way down the street. She and her daughter had been ushered through the front doors, led wordlessly down two or three corridors, and finally left in another windowless interior room. It looked almost like a hospital room, Cat thought except she saw no medical devices. Just a couple chairs, a bed, a sink, a television, and a small bathroom with a toilet and a concrete shower. Don't be scared. It'll be all right. Sit down on the bed. Cat hated lying to her daughter, but the look of terror on the girl's face was starting to become too much. You shouldn't show so much emotion. It was an important lesson for blue covers to learn at a young age. Showing too much emotion brought attention to you, and that was always bad, never good. Party members did not like to see emotion on the faces of a blue cover. Especially soldiers, Cat had learned, were quick to misinterpret emotions and intentions. Today, it was hard, though. Echo was afraid, and Cat could see it written on her face. She wondered if her daughter could see her own fear. Cat knew she was smarter than most blue covers. She understood more fully how things like society and the world worked. She knew she was here today because of her and Echo's failure to adhere to a new policy that had been announced several months earlier. She knew it was foolish to fail to follow policy. She knew the party was infallible. She knew that the people who made the rules were smarter than she was and much more important. She knew all of that, yet she had still failed to follow the policy. Number 033756, Cat. The man was talking as he entered, looking at the file in his hand. And daughter, Echo. This time he looked up to both of them. His face was unreadable. Cat saw no anger, joy, hate, or even interest in his surroundings. He was as stoic as the building they were in. Please sit. Yes, Mr. Cat sat beside her daughter, hoping for a hint of what the man was feeling in his reply. Doctor. He gave her a very hard look. My title will be sufficient for now. I'm a local representative of the medical wing of the party. Cat kept her mouth closed and gave up nothing. She knew no subtle flattery would work on this man. I'm very busy today, so I'll come directly to the point. He put the file on the counter at his side. Why have you failed in your duty to follow party policy? The policy has been posted, explained, and ordered for this zone as well as several others. Very few have failed to follow the policy without medical reasons, making it impossible for them. I'd read both your files, and I see nothing keeping you from doing your part. So, why? Well, Doctor, Cat knew the way she answered was very critical.
She knew what she wanted to say. My partner's part of the new military blue cover units, and he's not here. My daughter's barely 15 years old. She kept these reasons to herself. These were emotional reasons, and therefore not really reasons at all. They would not suffice for the party. She had only incorrect reasons in her mind, and they did not line up with the correctness and infallibility of the party. I have found it difficult to find a suitable partner. Many of the men have gone away. It was the only thing she could think of. That is unacceptable. His response was short and sharp. There was no anger yet, but Kat knew she was in danger. But it's also easily remedied. He knocked on the door behind him two times. As far as your daughter, is the reason the same? Yes, doctor. Kat wanted to scream. Of course it was not the same. The girl was 15 years old. The idea of her following the policy was... was... Kat had to catch herself. She had almost let her mind tell her that it was wrong. Of course, anything the party made policy was not wrong. The party was infallible. She just did not understand. Well then, the doctor picked his file back up. How long since your last period? Both of you. Two weeks, Cat answered for both of them. Good. He snapped his file closed, pulled one of the chairs to the wall, and sat down. Today you'll each undergo several treatments to remedy the problem. If it's successful, that'll be the end of it. If it's not successful, you'll come back next month. Doctor, the procedure. Cat had hoped this would be the outcome. She had heard of medical treatments to induce pregnancy without having to have sex with a man. This was the reason she had put it off for so long. She tried not to let her joy and victory show on her face. How does it work? How does it work? The doctor cocked an eyebrow. You have a child sitting beside you. I assume you have at least told her how babies are made. No, I mean the procedure... Kat's sentence was cut short when a knock sounded on the door. Come in, the doctor replied. Kat's blood turned to ice as four men entered the room. They were dressed in GNU military uniforms. None of them could have been older than 18, if even that. Mom? Echo's voice was barely a whisper. Kat looked to her and saw terror written all over her face. She would have scolded her, but she knew her own face was no longer a mask of calmness. Now, I understand this might be uncomfortable. The doctor was talking again. Cat could barely comprehend his voice with the blood pumping loudly in her ears. If you would like to wait in the bathroom during your daughter's treatments, that would be fine. Or if you wish to stay, you can. He met her gaze, and finally, she looked back at him. Yeah, it's really up to you. Oh, I'll stay. She grabbed her daughter's hand. Her mind had finally stopped wailing. She might not have understood it, but Kat did understand that this was the party's policy. The party was infallible. Anything she or Echo might be feeling emotionally wasn't important in the end. If the party needed this to happen, there had to be a reason. Take off your clothes, Echo. It was Kat's voice she needed to hear, not the doctor's. The first man was already starting to disrobe. It will be okay. It will be okay, Cat was saying. 
But as the man dropped his pants, the realization rose up in her, overcoming her own disciplined mind. It was not okay. There was no part of this situation, Kat finally realized, that was okay. She wanted to launch herself at the doctor and tear his face off with her bare hands. She wanted to snatch his pin and drive it into the soldier's eye. But she couldn't. At her neck, and the neck of her daughter, the collar blinked rapidly. And in moments like this, she remembered the weight of it around her neck and the pointlessness of any resistance to the party. And so, as the first soldier took Echo, all Cat could do was weep hot tears of pure rage. What could they possibly have to offer? The people around her were talking, but Ellison wasn't listening to them. Judith hated that the new policy was necessary. The idea of forcing women to become pregnant and raise more than one or two children was against anything and everything the party had been preaching since its inception. Rewriting history and churning out new propaganda to explain the policy was not difficult, but it still irked her. She was, among many other things, a true believer in her cause. However, she also understood, like very few others, that facts and political policy must bend to the needs of the party and not the other way around. Yes, but the last reports claim that we're losing ground in the south of the state. Only because we've moved soldiers out of that area to answer the army moving in from the north. The resistance in the south only amounts to guerrilla forces. In the north it appears to be a larger, more organized force. Uh, who's to say these northern dissenters aren't part of the same group as the ones from the south? Scouts. Scouts are saying they're two different factions completely. Dressed differently, armed differently. One is allied with these LDS dissenters, and the other's not. They could still be allies, working with one another, attacking on two fronts. Why are you making more of this than it already is? These are dissenting savages, not trained armies. We're winning the damn war, aren't we? Yes. Yes, they were, in fact, winning the war. But they were losing blue covers as well as party men in droves. Ellison began tapping her fingernails on the table as the argument proceeded. General Bradford's plan of using blue covers was working just as planned. But the casualty rate for the squads was through the roof. Most of the blue-covered women in San Francisco didn't know it yet, but their partners were dead, and this necessitated a repopulation of their numbers as quickly as possible. It was easier to breed them rather than to try to domesticate living adults. In most cases, it was impossible to turn a savage human into a blue-cover unless they were captured very young. At any rate, it wasn't worth the trouble. The argument was heating up, and it brought her attention back to the conversation. I'm sorry, General, can you repeat that? She turned toward him, and the seven others gathered around the table. In addition to the party members there in body, three others were on the meeting via live-streaming video coming from three of the six large TV screens on the wall. Francois Charnay from Nice, Greta Alfson from Oslo, and Sai Bagat of Mumbai, all looked on stoically, not involving themselves in the bickering. I said that it might behoove us to attempt an alliance with them. The general, as always, was pushing his luck, 
if they are enemies of the LDS, they could prove to be an ally to us. We do not know if they're enemies or not. Ellison's demure chairwoman of party policies, Sarah Nakamura, protested. She stood up as if to gain an advantage and spoke more surely than anyone had ever heard her speak before. Hostility was plain in her voice. What you're suggesting is not correct, not correct at all to align ourselves with the dissent. A grumbling of approval came from the TV monitors, but none of them said anything. I agree. Lucas Hagen backed her. Anyone who's not the party is an enemy. The grizzled older man had served for nearly 20 years in various positions of power. Currently, he handled municipal matters for the party's metropolitan headquarters. Using the working class for war is one thing, but drawing up alliances with savages is quite another. It may not be my place, Greta's voice sang through the monitor, but I must agree with Miss Nakamura. Non-party members are, well, it's not possible to make terms with them. They're pests to be eliminated if they cause problems, nothing else. We have attempted in our area to domesticate adult non-party members into the worker class. It's always a disaster. Bagat spoke next, emboldened by his foreign colleague. It's not only bad policy. It just doesn't work. What is truly paramount? The ancient voice near the foot of the table croaked. Alfred Eichmann was older than all of them by two decades. He had held the same post, neither advancing nor receding within the party structure, for as long as anyone at the table had known the man. He was a minor chairman in terms of importance and position, and every other measure among them. He was the chairman of education. He cleared his throat before he continued in the dense silence of the room. The ideology of the party, or the power of the party? No one dared to answer, though they were all clever enough to know. Morals, policy, history, truth, lies, yes, even ideology, can be bent to serve the party. The party is not its ideologies, brothers and sisters. The party is only, and has only ever been, its power. The deep, deafening pause that enveloped all of them would have lasted much longer had there not been a chaotic bedlam of noise burst from Sai Bagat's monitor. Several shouts and the staccato sounds of gunfire overcame the silence like a panic. What is happening? Nakamura's voice had grown smaller again. No one replied, but all eyes searched the monitor. Sai had disappeared. The shouting was louder the gunshots more steady, repetitive. Finally, there was quiet, and Sai sat back down in the chair in front of the monitor. He was pale as a sheet, and blood was upon his face. In his hand, he held a piece of paper. It wavered, and his voice began to speak, but there were not words that he had written. We know who you are, all of you. We know what you've done, all of you. Sai began to waver again, and his voice was lost. A non-verbal prompting forced him to continue. 
We are new hope. We are coming for you. A last shot rang out, and Sai's body went grotesquely rigid for a moment, then slacked back into the chair. He did not fall. He stared with dead eyes into the monitor, into all of them. Then the feed went black. All call signs, the tiger is down. Kaminsky's voice spoke into the radio in his helmet. We've got five minutes for TSC, then we set charges in Exfil. Five minutes might have been pushing it. There were only ten men in his strike team, and no real hope for them to combat the hundreds of GNU troops that resided in the surrounding area. They had moved in like specters under the cover of darkness, infiltrated the main party building, and killed every man in it. There had only been 27 men inside, all high-ranking party members. The head of the Indian GNU party, or the Tiger, was Sai Bagat. He was the last one they'd killed. We've got movement at the front of the building. The radio squawked. GNU regs. Looks like a guard change, but they seem curious. We got 30 seconds tops. Over. Set charges now. Rally to me. Kaminsky touched a button on his helmet and sent a ping to the rest of the team. The ping would show up on each man's HUD built into the helmet. We're leaving. It was okay with Kaminsky. The side exploitation wasn't as important as getting out of the place before too many guns showed up. New Hope's forces were spread thin enough as it was. The loss of his team would be a worse blow than losing some intelligence they might need. New Hope was a tiny nation, involved in a global campaign, and the deliberate surgical strikes they carried out were the only logical thing to do. The objective was simple. Cut off the head of the snake and instill fear in the enemy. Kaminsky pumped four more suppressed rounds into Bagat's head and chest, and then he left the room. What he had written for Bagat to say was only true in part. They did know who they were dealing with. They did know what they'd done, and they were coming for them. What they hoped the GNU hadn't pieced together yet was how wildly they outnumbered New Hope. Even if you didn't count the brainwashed legions of workers the GNU called Blue Covers, New Hope was still outnumbered about a thousand to one. If you only counted the GNU soldiery, it was still about a hundred to one. Kaminsky had learned one thing of import. The bastards had started breeding. New Hope hadn't really expected that. Everything the party stood for was built on a foundation of depopulation. All the propaganda, the vitriolic political rhetoric, and working agendas of the GNU revolved around it and had for over a century and a half. Suddenly, they had abandoned this cornerstone and they were breeding like jackrabbits. What was worse, they were good at it. Nearly every single female member of the GNU, from the blue covers all the way to the inner party, was at least six months pregnant. Some had already given birth to squalling infants. Kaminsky hated them for it. He looked into a room as he passed it. In it were the women who had been in the party building when they took it. They had their mouths taped shut, and all their hands were restrained behind their backs. They stood with a guard of three ravens watching them. Let's go. He pointed, and they didn't move. Kaminsky raised his rifle at the nearest of them. He'd pegged her for the highest rank. Move or die. In truth, his orders were to kill all GNU party members, regardless of gender. When he had seen all the swollen bellies, though, he couldn't bring himself to do it. 
charges planted, moving to you, over. A voice spoke in his helmet. Only he and his teammates heard it. They're here. They aren't coming in. Another voice. They're on the radio. Assume calling for backup. We need to move. Over. Kaminsky had to make a decision. If the women wouldn't leave, the charges would kill them. If he didn't kill them, he was disobeying orders. If he tried to take them with him, his team would die. Kaminsky wanted to spit at the irony of it all. The most degenerate and morally bankrupt organization in human memory, shielded by the morality of their enemies. You're free to go. He simply pointed the way to the front door. He keyed up his mic. Women are coming out the front. Let them buy. It'll buy us a little time. Understood. Kaminsky couldn't tell what his men were thinking, but they knew as well as he did that they were disobeying orders. As the women started out, they glared at Kaminsky and his men, shuffling at first, now trotting, now running. Then they were gone. Let's move. Kaminsky led the way out the back door and into the alley. Immediately, they were being watched. Women with close-cut hair and blue coveralls looked at them from the windows of apartments in the backyards, in the gardens. They looked at Kaminsky very much as he remembered cattle in a field looking at a passing traveler on a roadway. Dull curiosity and naivety was all that was written on their faces. They didn't understand what or who they were seeing. He and his team might as well have walked in during the day as long as it was only these blue covers that saw them. Kaminsky almost wanted to laugh, but it wasn't funny. He detonated the charges after he and his team had only traveled 50 yards. The charges were new tech and precise. They caused a sort of self-implosion of the building behind them, destroying the target building without touching even the closest buildings on either side of it. The destruction of the building wasn't the point. It was the message it sent. New Hope had technology that the GNU had never dreamt of, and they wanted them to know that. The more clever members among them would understand the implications of that technology, and, if all went to plan, they would panic. They moved deliberately down the street to the coast, loaded up in two inflatable strike boats, fired up the motors, and headed back to sea without firing a shot. Away from the coastline, the submarine waited for them. We have to tell somebody, Kaminsky said to no one in particular. Sir? The closest of his teammates replied. In their full kit, the soldiers looked completely anonymous and alien. In fact, most of the primitive people they ran across did not even register that these New Hope troopers were even human. About the babies. Kaminsky's voice was steady. It came through the helmet with a voice modifier that made it sound digital and menacing, yet still there was softness in his tone. He was a veteran of several engagements. He had killed. He had seen his friends killed. He had witnessed some of the worst things humanity had to offer. But the moral conundrum of this new development almost made him sick. Command is going to have to figure out what to do. Commander, the man on his left held out to Kaminsky an item. I picked this up before we rolled out. What is it? Kamansky took the thing and turned it over in his hand. Then his mind latched onto it. It had been a fleeting thing, mentioned in a briefing he remembered from three months before. He probably wouldn't even have remembered it if not under the effects of the CEDs. The collar control. Yes, I remember. From the briefing. 
Kaminsky was forming the plan in his mind already. His teammates' next question showed that they were both of the same mind. Do you think New Hope can duplicate that? Yes, Kaminsky grinned. Yes, I think they can. Chapter 4 They'd always called John crazy. The old coot had been prophesying the end of the world for the better part of two decades now. Every village needed its idiot, though, so nobody had bothered him much. He lived away from the main settlement, out in the desert by himself. From time to time, the settlers would bring John food, clothing, and other things. He was grateful, but it wasn't really needed. Everything he needed, the Lord provided for him, even in the dry desert. Game, peace, and beauty. It was all he needed, and all of it could be found in the wilds where he lived. But he'd always known that the peace and the beauty would not last. He'd seen it in a dream when he was younger. When the bombs struck the Republic, John had been bathing in the cool waters of Lake Powell. In the course of a single afternoon, both Salt Lake City and St. George had been wiped off the map. John had seen the clouds, and he knew exactly what they meant. His dream had finally come true. He mounted his horse naked, save for a blanket, gathered up his fire into his horn, and rode south, clutching his book under his arm. Nothing was left to do but spread his message to those who remained. Monument Valley, Arizona The mummified dead lay upon the earth, and the sight of it was something Noah had almost forgotten. In their hundreds and thousands, they were on the road in every manner and disposition. Some huddled together with their knees drawn up to their chest and backs to one another. Others contorted into impossible shapes of horror, as if their death throes had been the agony of hell itself. One stood upright beneath a gnarled desert juniper tree, clutching at the feet of another who hung there. This was the southern road. A failed exodus of the miserable and plague-stricken. They had, all of them, died here in this huge and awesome place. Great monoliths stood upon the plain and looked at the dead with the sightless eyes of primal gods, and the giant rocks watched the living as well as the dead as the Texans and Canyonites rode through. In a long walking line, the horses went through the valley. Noah rode beside Garrett, and neither of them spoke a word. Even the Canyonites held their tongues in the face of these rocks. They were used to the giant mountains that were their home, but there was a something different about these wonders before them now. This place is bad. The words shook Noah's eyes away from the corpses beneath the tree. Vernon was beside him, looking more frightened than anything. Noah tried to remember if he'd seen fear on the man's face before, but he couldn't remember it. Why did nothing eat these? He gestured to the bodies of the dead around them. This is bad magic. I ain't gonna disagree with you, Garrett replied blithely. But there ain't but the one way to go, chief. There was nothing to be done for it. The valley was the route they needed to take. The scouts had returned that morning and had brought news of the enemy and how to get at them. The troop was taking the most direct route before the blue-clad enemies figured out they were in the area. 
The troop of Canaanites and Texans had been in four skirmishes thus far into the campaign, and they hadn't even made their way to their destination yet. They were close, according to the map and the instructions of the Mormons. In Moab waited a Mormon resistance force that was meant to rendezvous with the mounted guerrillas, and from there the plan was to hit the enemy wherever they could be found. Noah and his light cavalry were already hitting them. In the realm of battle, they'd been highly successful. Outside of that had been a different story. The Texans hated the Canyonites. The Canyonites were undisciplined, even by the loose standards of this irregular guerrilla force, and they reveled in brutality. After the first skirmish, Noah and the Texans had watched in horror as the Canyonites descended on the beaten GNU soldiers and started cutting them to pieces. Noses, ears, scalps, and skins were peeled off dead and dying men. No quarter was shown to the GNU soldiers as a matter of course. Some of the Texans had been squeamish about that from the beginning, but it had taken only one bloody massacre witness to dispel this hesitation. The Texans and Canyonites had watched with binoculars and spotting scopes from a ridge, while twenty men in blue coveralls carrying rifles, equipped with bayonets, went through a small Mormon settlement. They had killed every man, woman, and child present in brutal fashion. They'd been too late to stop the slaughter, but they'd seen it carried out, and it fueled them as they swept in on horseback and rode the GNU soldiers down, killing them to a man. It wasn't that part that Noah and the other Texans had a problem with. It was the other. The savagery. The brutality. After the battle, the Canyonites looked as if they might have rolled in the death like dogs on a carcass. Because of the schism that was occurring within the group, Noah had become kind of a go-between for the two parties. The only thing that made this possible was the weird reverence the Canyonites seemed to have for him. The Texans liked Noah, young as he was. The Canyonites were afraid of and in awe of him. They seemed to think he held some spiritual power. The dichotomy worked so that within a month of starting the expedition, Noah was the closest thing to a leader that the party of hunters had. The Canyonites deferred to Vernon, their chief, and did as he commanded. The Texans followed Garrett. Both Garrett and Vernon held Noah in constant counsel, but they had nothing to do with one another. As they passed among the dead and the red spires and castles of rock about them, the sun dipped to the horizon, bathing the troop in red and orange hues of light. They continued like this forward in silence. The only sound was the shuffling of the horses and the popping of rocks underfoot. Out of this Martian land before them and opposite them came a single rider, horseback, and obscured by the setting of the sun. He rode forward boldly until he was almost fully upon them and among them. Noah saw him first and cautioned the others to stay their weapons. "'Where are you going?' The stranger spoke loudly, in a voice that seemed like it had no business belonging to such a disheveled creature. A shock of white hair and a white beard were curiously untouched by the redness of the dust in the evening. He wore no shoes, nor pants, nor shirt. His only covering was a faded serape. And he bore no weapon of any device save a long, gnarled staff of juniper wood in his left hand. 
In his right, he clutched a glowing horn in which he carried fire. With the horn and under his arm was a book. In this book were written things that most of the world had forgotten, but the writer could summon up the words like spells. He spoke with authority, and the whole troop pulled back on their reins when he opened his mouth again. The old man's eyes were like fire, and his voice was like rushing water. I know thy works. He regarded them wildly, nearly yelling at them. Can you bear the evil of this land? I say many of you cannot, and will not. His words seemed crazy, yet his voice was steady and certain. Mister? Garrett looked the man up and down. You all right? You need some water? There was a murmuring among the Texans, and yet more among the Canyonites. Vernon cast a glance to Noah, as if Noah would have something to say. "'It is the end,' cried the man. "'The end that never came before. We thought we could cheat it.' He turned his face to one group, then the other, then back to Noah. "'We thought we could hide in our temples, and that God would leave us be.' We thought we deserved to be passed over by his wrath, but we were wrong. We were not the innocents we thought ourselves to be, and now we come to our end. He's a spirit of the dead, hissed Vernon. No, no, waved his hand. He must have come from a settlement. He must have gotten away. You need some water, sir, called Garrett again. Noah watched the man, unsure of what to do, and the man looked back at him, perhaps into his very soul, and then he stepped forward. Noah didn't move, but the other riders parted like a sea. To the man's left hand went the canyonites. To his right, the Texans sidestepped their mounts. He rode to Noah in the middle of the dead road, and he stopped. For several moments, there was nothing but silence and the wind moving easily through the valley. I can see you. The man's voice was soft, and he looked deeply into Noah's face, extending his staff toward him. I know you. Only Noah heard the words he spoke now. We can give you food, sir. Noah nodded toward him, unsure of what else to say. Water, if you need. He paused. You ought not go on this way. There ain't nothing but desert and dead bodies. He tried to explain, but the man interrupted him again. Death is behind me. The man's voice was even lower now. Saner. Sadder. Death before me. He stepped his horse right up beside Noah's own, close enough to touch him. Reaching out, he pressed the glowing horn into Noah's hand, and with the horn, the book. Noah accepted them, not knowing what else to do, and the horn glowed with the paleness of the rising moon. He could feel the warmth inside of it. I know you. The old man repeated it like a blessing, and he made a sign in front of Noah with his hand, and then he passed on from them without another word, continuing down the road of death. Suddenly, he was gone. At Noah's right and left were his men, the Texans on one side and the Canyonites on the other. Queer looks were general, but Noah read something deeper in the face of Vernon. A curse. Vernon spat into the dirt, and he held up four fingers as if to ward off the horn that Noah was holding. What in the hell did he say? 
Garrett was just as curious, but not so animated. Noah pondered how to answer. I said he knew me. I don't think he's going to make it much further. Somehow, Noah knew that the man had anointed him in some way. For better or for worse, the entire party of men now looked at him as if he sat in some sort of authority. The Canyonites looked at him as if anew. Whatever had just happened meant something to them somehow. Oddly enough, the Texans were looking at him in nearly the same way. Where do you think he came from? Garrett looked back, watching the strange man disappear behind them. I expect he came from the Mormon settlement ahead of us, Noah shrugged, clutching the horn a little closer to his chest. He slipped the book inside his shirt, between his vest and his chest. It was cool, salutary against his skin in some sort of way, like a balm. My guess is the blue bastards hit another one. This wasn't his only thought, but it was all the explanation he cared to offer at the moment. For the first time in the last several weeks, Noah noticed that every man among them was looking at a single figure of authority. He didn't like it, and he didn't want it. But that didn't matter. It would have to do. He would have to do. Uh, let's go get him. Noah spurred his horse without another word, and every man followed. They found the settlement, at first light, by the smoke of the smoldering buildings. The corpses lay strewn on the road in doorways, some still in their beds. They looked like every horror of Noah's worst dreams. Men, women, children, and infants, all dead now. Already, it looked like wolves and dogs had been at the bodies, but there were no tracks of beasts to be seen, only the footprints of men. How could they do this? Garrett turned from the bodies of two children, too young yet to talk. Now they never would. Noah stood with him in the doorway of the house. Behind him, a man and a woman were both dead in the yard. I don't know. Noah grit his teeth. But when we catch him, we ain't gonna ask. The rising sun illuminated the desert landscape and made the red rocks glow. Naked and free from their blue coveralls, the men stooped by the stagnant pond and they dipped their hands into the cool water. Without clothes on, they looked like they might have been the earth's own children. Sloughed up out of the ground and stained in blood, these red men did their best to cleanse themselves in the putrid pool. They came out of the cold water steaming and foul-smelling, stagnant and vile. Five minutes, called the sergeant. The man stretched, popped his back, and gathered up his rifle in his hands, making his way toward one of the vehicles near the pond. Into the transports, called another man. Get dressed and move. We have work to do. Noah and Garrett watched them from their bellies atop a rise with binoculars. As soon as Noah saw most of the men were naked and still milling about the pool, he knew they had to act as swiftly as possible. He snaked backward a few feet, and then he dove toward the horses with Garrett behind him. No one spoke. They all just looked to Noah and seemed to understand what the plan was. He leapt into the saddle, wheeled his mount, and took off clattering over the rocky ground. His silent compatriots fell in behind him, everyone at a gallop. It took them only seconds to clear the rise and start down the other side. The GNU squad was only a quarter mile away from them. 
Two men dressed and armed, and the rest naked and milling, they could not see their attackers, obscured by the rising sun, until it was too late. Noah brought up his short-barreled rifle with one arm and shouldered it. It was suppressed, and he aimed right over the ears of his horse. Then he opened up on the sergeant with a short burst of automatic fire. Blood and viscera spattered the open interior of the vehicle as Noah thundered by where the sergeant had been standing. The man had gotten his rifle up, but hadn't gotten his safety off in time to do any good. He folded in half and fell in a heap by the vehicle. Garrett dispatched the only other man holding a rifle shortly after Noah had dealt with the sergeant. He jerked the reins back on his charging gray, and he circled the man on the ground. He was not dead yet, and he clawed at the earth, shuddering and crawling away. The man let out a moan like that of a dying animal. Garrett worked the action of his lever gun, pumped around into the back of his skull from the saddle, and then turned and, and spurred away toward the rest of them. Some of the naked men ran for their clothes and their rifles, only to be cut down by the gunfire of no less than twenty Texans. Not one man made it to his rifle. Others, mad with fear, took off running the other way, away from the charging horsemen. Vernon and a host of Canyonites wheeled wildly left, running the men down. They leapt off their horses onto the men with axes, clubs, and short swords in their hands. Their shrieking voices bounced off the red walls of the canyons around them. Scalps were taken, ears, tongues, and other parts. Still, three of the men simply stood where they had been, knee-deep in the water of the pond. They covered themselves with their hands and stood staring to the left and the right, shaking in fear. To one side, gun smoke hung like a fog, and men in cowboy hats fired into the dead bodies of their friends from horseback. To the other side, savages brandished dripping trophies into the sky and wailed like demons. The water eddied around them, freshly disturbed by the frightful exodus of their naked comrades. It was dully tinged red from the blood of the Mormon settlers, not yet a full day gone. They looked toward the lone man wheeling on the buckskin horse, a leader, a victorious captain between the two flanks of his cavalry. The three watched him, silently wondering to which side he belonged in the distinct separation of their foemen. Death waited for them on either side. The only question was the manner. Noah removed the spent magazine from his rifle, dropped it in a dump pouch slung on the pommel of his saddle, replaced it with a full one, and slammed his palm on the release, recharging the rifle. He stared at the three men, his eyes squinting, dark and feral. His horse turned circles, too chargy to stand still. Flipping the safety on, Noah slung his rifle by the sling over the saddle horn. Then he kicked his right leg over the horse's neck and dropped to the ground, making his way toward the pond on foot. The men took one or two steps backward, but there was no place for them to go. Taking his tomahawk in one hand and his knife in the other, Noah stomped out into the red water of the pond. Please, said one. I, we, I didn't, stammered a second. The third man lost control of his bladder and urine ran down his leg, adding to the reeking stink of the stagnant pond. Noah said no words. He spoke with the point of his knife and the edge of his tomahawk. 
and the light red water splashed and swirled in the now still morning. It roiled, changing from a thin pink to a dark crimson, while two hundred and fifty men watched their captain sawing, pulling, then ripping from three white skulls three dripping scalps.